welcome to this edition of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm James Morris, trainee editor of the journal. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. George Webster to discuss his recent paper for the journal entitled Deep Sedation and Anesthesia in Complex Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, a joint position statement endorsed by the British Society of Gastroenterology, Joint Advisory Group and Royal College of Anaesthetics. Dr. Webster is a consultant gastroenterologist at University College London Hospitals and the Royal Free Hospital. His main clinical focus is pancreatobiliary endoscopy, with an ongoing research interest related to ERCP, clangioscopy, IgG4 and hepatobiliary disease. He is the Chair of Endoscopy and Vice President of the British Society of Gastroenterology and actively involved in endoscopy training as Director of the annual London Live Endoscopy course and on the organising committee of BSG Endoscopy Live 2019, due to take place in a few weeks in March, which we hope to hear a bit about later. Dr. Webster, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Can you begin by summarising how sedation practices in endoscopy have developed over the years in the UK? Uh, Yes, um, I was thinking about this. In many ways, not much. For the vast majority of the several million uh, endoscopies that are performed each year in the UK uh, in 2019, the approach to sedation is almost exactly the same uh, as it was when I first started doing endoscopy uh, maybe 25 years ago. And that is that the sedation, normally in the form of a benzodiazepine, such as midazolam and an opiate, such as fentanyl or pethidine, is administered by the endoscopist who is doing the procedure. And we have uh, called that conscious sedation. It is only really in the last few years, and largely in a very haphazard, ad hoc sort of way, that individual hospitals have looked at their practice and have incorporated some of the wealth of evidence from around the world and looked at how to do things rather differently. And on that last note, um, Dr. Webster, how therefore does current practice vary maybe both within the UK but also between countries both in Europe and further afield? Yeah, the answer is um, I don't think that there is any area of endoscopic practice within the UK or comparing UK practice with with, uh, other countries that diverges more significantly than the issues around sedation. And so in some countries around the world, virtually every endoscopy is uh, delivered using uh, deep sedation with with propofol in huge contrast to the at least 95% of endoscopies in the UK that are delivered with conscious sedation. But even within the UK, um, and particularly, and I think the particular focus needs to be on complex endoscopy. Um, I think in the discussions about anaesthetist and assisted enhanced um, sedation, for example, using propofol, there are certainly a lot of what one might call simple diagnostic procedures that are well tolerated with conscious sedation. But when one looks at complex diagnostic and particularly complex therapeutic procedures, which have increased hugely 
uh, as a proportion of endoscopies over the last 20 years or so, um, there's very divergent practice. So, for example, my particular area of, of interest is therapeutic uh, biliary endoscopy, ERCP, um, where around the country, depending on where you go to, um, your chance of having uh, an anaesthetist-assisted procedure, the anaesthetist giving either propofol or, or, or a general anaesthetic, um, varies between a 0% chance and a 100% chance. And I would suggest to you that there is no area of, of UK endoscopic practice in which you would see such divergent practice. That's incredibly interesting. And so clearly variation in practice within the country has been a big driver to this new uh, position statement of which you're the senior author and is being published in Frontline Gastroenterology uh, shortly. Um, could you just tell us um, a bit more background about the article and maybe other issues that um, led to uh, the um, uh, need to produce this position statement among the joint uh, colleges? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I would say that, of course, just because one hospital never provides the option of propofol or, or, or general anaesthetic, and another hospital does does provides this in 100% of cases, that doesn't of itself mean that one hospital is giving uh, a better service than the other until we start looking at the data uh, behind this. And there really is pretty strong uh, evidence now for the problems that can arise with offering no alternative to conscious sedation. Um, so, for example, ERCP is almost exclusively a therapeutic procedure, um, meaning that there is an intervention that we are looking to perform to, without going into specifics, we want to perform that intervention to make the patient better after the procedure than they were before, whether that be removing a gallstone, draining a, a blocked bile duct. And we published, oh, 10 or 15 years ago now from uh, um, my own hospital at University College in London, that where we failed the procedure, we failed in more than 30% of cases because the patient was intolerant of intravenous sedation. So we might say, okay, well, that's fine. You're just not giving enough uh, so-called conscious sedation. But then we get to the other end, the NCPOD study um, uh, review from 2004 highlighted problems with sedation practice for endoscopy in the UK and showed significant levels of over sedation um, uh, in patients. Now, for obvious reasons, that has a risk of its own. And in that study, they found that 8% of patients were requiring the use of flumazenil as uh, a benzodiazepine reversal agent um, during endoscopy. Well, now that would now be viewed as a never event. And so we can see that whether the patient is intolerant of the procedure because they're not sedated well enough, or we're overdoing it and putting the patient at potential risk by giving them more sedation in an attempt to achieve uh, sufficient levels of uh, sedation, one can see that if one is relying on conscious sedation uh, alone, 
one is running into real difficulties. I'm very, I was very struck by a, uh, a study from uh, a few years ago of patients undergoing uh, ERCP um, in which using a standardized assessment of uh, mental distress, 10% of patients after a sedated ERCP met verified criteria for acute mental distress after an ERCP. And those of us who've been involved in interventional endoscopy and ERCP have all had experience, um, which is uh, unpleasant to say the least for all concerned, um, not least the patient, where one has had to try and complete a therapeutic procedure and the patient has found it almost intolerable or sometimes completely intolerable. And, you know, just from my own practice, that made me realise that one of the most important things that we might look at in terms of UK endoscopic practice is how we might support endoscopy units having the uh, and developing the facility, the provision for anaesthetist-assisted endoscopy. You described really nicely there, uh, Dr. Webster, navigating this very complex path, I suppose, between uh, giving patients adequate sedation so they tolerate the procedure well and don't have a horrific experience, but on the other hand, doing it safely and not over-sedating patients. The article discusses very nicely some of the procedural and patient-related factors that we should be considering when deciding what kind of sedation to be giving our patients, and particularly which patients would benefit uh, particularly from anaesthetic-led deep sedation. Could you just go into some of those um, issues for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you've, uh, as you've uh, suggested, there are really pre- uh, patient-related factors and there are procedure-related factors that need to be considered. In terms of the patient-related factors, I suppose overall the most most frequent patient-related factor is previous difficult experience with conscious sedation. Patient choice. You know, um, if one has no facility to offer the the option of an anaesthetist-assisted endoscopy, then when the patient says, look, I just, you know, cannot accept the idea that I might be aware of the procedure Um, or that it might be uncomfortable. Now, if we're being honest, when we consent the patient concerning um, conscious sedation for an endoscopic procedure, we can never give a complete guarantee that the patient will be unaware of the the procedure. And so patient choice may be a factor um, that we we have to be able to accommodate. There are particular patient-related factors that certainly require an anaesthetist to be involved, uh, whether giving propofol or perhaps even giving um, general anaesthesia. Those may be airway issues, uh, particular risks relate to the patient with uh, a risk of uh, or or known diagnosis diagnosis of uh, obstructive sleep apnea, um, very high BMI. In terms of procedures, we're increasingly, the number of complex, prolonged, interventional uh, endoscopic uh, procedures in the UK has increased dramatically over the last 10 years. You know, in the the past, it probably would have been restricted to to ERCP. 
Um, but now therapeutic uh, endoscopic uh, ultrasound, small bowel uh, enteroscopy is particularly stimulatory uh, under conscious sedation, and many of those procedures are, are prolonged. But also in, in therapeutic upper uh, and lower GI endoscopy, you know, the, the endoscopist is really moving into the domain of the surgeons now, taking off extremely large um, polyps and colonic lesions uh, or avoiding major esophageal surgery with uh, esophagogastric uh, endoscopic uh, uh, resections. Um, and mentioning surgery, uh, you know, the idea that um, our surgical colleagues would accept um, not infrequently being unable to complete an operation because of the patient not being able to tolerate it would be completely unthinkable. But culturally, because we've had to no alternative, you know, within endoscopy, we've sort of culturally come to accept that there will be a proportion of patients who will have to come back on another day because um, they don't, they can't tolerate um, uh, sedation. Um, and I think that that should be uh, in the future, uh, a pretty unacceptable scenario. We have to be able to offer the alternatives. You, you described very helpfully there an increasing range of very complex endoscopic procedures, um, which of course um, leads uh, to the question of how adequate existing service infrastructure is to deal with these increasingly com complex uh, cases. Um, and what I found particularly helpful in your paper was um, a very nice um, uh, description of um, the um, infrastructure, I suppose, of what's required to deliver a safe and effective service um, for these patients. So could you perhaps briefly just take us through some of the key features of delivering um, a, a good service, uh, with, which is anaesthetic-led, uh, to provide deep sedation for complex procedures? Yeah, um, I, I think the key feature is engagement. And the groups that need to be engaged with are one's endoscopy colleagues, the anaesthetists are apps. Uh, I mean, it, it, it may seem an obvious thing to say, but uh, I think anaesthetists would, would perhaps challenge the assumption that they are always central when, when we think about anaesthetist-assisted endoscopy. Uh, many of my anaesthetic colleagues you know, report anecdotes of being summoned down to endoscopy, to, to the endoscopy unit to help with a, with a procedure. Um, uh, it, is an, it is an alien environment um, for uh, the anaesthetists. Um, at, they are, they would say themselves, comfortable within the theatre environment. And I think that it is only through close working between... Um, uh, Anesthetists and um, anesthetists uh, between anesthetists and endoscopists that one actually builds a service. Um, one needs to engage with uh, specific individuals who are going to be the standard bearer and the advocates for the, the benefit of uh, developing this service. And certainly within uh, our own unit at UCH, that has been uh, that has been the case. One also needs to engage closely with, with our, our management colleagues. You know, this, uh, an, an anaesthetic um, delivered endoscopy list 
requires um, an investment of organization, of money, of reconfiguration of lists. Um, certainly when one starts off, one cannot expect to uh, crack through you know, a 12-point list uh, in the way that one did previously. Um, one needs to look very closely at um, all the stages of setting up a service, um, engagement with the anaesthetists, defining endoscopists who want to take this forward within their, within, uh, th their service. No unit is going to go from no endoscopic lists to wall-to-wall -wall endoscopic lists. One is always going to start small with, you know, perhaps one list a week uh, and then uh, expand from there. One needs to set up anaesthetic pre-assessment slots. We need to be sure that there is infrastructure within an endoscopy unit and we, we outline uh, what will be necessary in our paper. One needs to be sure that there is adequate uh, recovery facility um, for these patients. So it is an awful lot more that is needed than just um, you know, getting an anaesthetist along and seeing if they will uh, um, come down and, uh, and help with the case. And, um, and it, is, it is an evolution, um, but what we hope our paper might do is uh, to lay out for um, uh, endoscopy units um, some of the, um, the sort of fundamental factors that need to be considered and put in place when one's looking to uh, introduce this service. Thank you, that's enormously helpful. Okay, so moving on um, briefly to training, it would be fantastic to hear a bit about uh, training opportunities uh, that may be available in sedation and endoscopy, and it would be particularly good to hear about the upcoming EndoLive event in March. So could you just give us a bit of information about this event? Uh, yes, I mean, actually, I think that our trainees have had access to more formalized training with, with respect to uh, endoscopy uh, or with respect to sedation and sedation practice than, than the vast majority of consultants. I certainly speak uh, of myself that I, I, I didn't have a single day of or a single moment of formalized sedation training um, uh, as a trainee. So I think actually trainees now have more access to this and there's much more awareness um, than, than was previously the case. With respect to um, discussions around, for example, propofol sedation, there are one or two um, uh, excellent courses now uh, around the UK, specifically tailored for anaesthetists and endoscopists to learn about uh, propofol sedation. Uh, for example, um, uh, my colleague Srisha Heber up in uh, Stoke uh, runs one such uh, excellent course. Um, you, you mentioned about uh, BSG Endoscopy Live, um, which is uh, happening March the 7th and 8th uh, up at the Sage in uh, uh, Newcastle. This is a biannual event um, and is the largest live endoscopy meeting uh, held in the UK. And actually, we're talking here about, uh, you know, best practice with, with regard to sedation. And um, the whole focus of BSG Endoscopy Live will be discussing, debating, 
demonstrating um, best practice in both diagnostic and therapeutic endoscopy. That will include what we've we've discussed, the, the debates around how best to deliver uh, optimal sedation practice. We've got the, the best uh, endoscopic uh, trainers in the UK and a fantastic international faculty uh, delivering live endoscopy from the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle and from um, my own hospital, University College in London. Um, there's going to be lectures, symposia. One of the fantastic innovations that will be uh, actually the first uh, international live endoscopy meeting anywhere in the world in which every delegate for the meeting will have um, an iPad. And on that iPad, they can review the lectures, annotate the lectures, be involved in quizzes, fire off questions, access endoscopic tricks and tips, look at industry-related information about which particular stent or which which endoscope is being used for the cases. Um, And um, it'll be a lot of fun. You know, we've got a a fantastic... uh, program of uh, uh, of uh, live endoscopy and um, I would very much encourage um, uh, trainees uh, and um, endoscopists endoscopy nurses and colleagues from UK and uh, overseas to uh, go on the BSG website and sign up today it's going to be an absolutely fantastic event Great. Thank you uh, very much indeed. So just to finish um, our podcast today, um, Dr. Webb, so could you just give us two or three uh, key learning points uh, to take away? Yeah, well, we've, we've spoken a lot about um, the particular focus has been on, on uh, safe sedation and with a particular focus on the provision of anaesthetist-assisted um, endoscopy. And I suppose what I would say is engage with your anaesthetists Keep in mind that what we're all trying to deliver is a patient-centered service. And if we're going to do that, we absolutely have to be able to have the option for individual patients and for particular procedures to provide enhanced sedation um, involving uh, anaesthetists. Um, uh, It only happens with engagement with our management and and, uh, anaesthetic colleagues. And uh, I think we need to learn from others. There are a significant number of hospitals now that have developed um, and uh, now provide that service. There isn't an absolute blueprint for how to do it. You know, we'll all learn from others. And if you don't have any set facility, I would encourage um, uh, units to look at what is happening within their regions to see if they can learn from, from others about how to deliver this service and introduce it because I am passionate that we will improve uh, patient experience and patient care by doing so. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast for Frontline Gastroenterology. Thank you very much indeed to Dr. Webster for such an informative discussion. If you've enjoyed it, please do rate the episode and do subscribe to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast to receive more content applying current research to clinical practice. Goodbye.